We said at the very onset of our time in the book of Jonah that this is a manual on the grace of God. This is a tutorial on how we are supposed to think about the Lord's benevolence for unworthy, hell-deserving sinners. And friend, this comes to us, of course, not as an epistle, not as a letter. This comes to us through history. But what we can't miss, even though we are so very familiar with these accounts, we cannot miss the fact that this is sacred history. Friend, we're not starting here at the ground level. The pictures that we get, the scenes that we see here are not from the terrestrial level. And it's not even that we're getting an eagle's eye view of these events. You see, friend, this text is inspired by the Spirit of God, as we all know. Which means that this account of of this history, friend, is from the vantage point of heaven. This is God's account of what has happened. And so as he tells us this story, by his Spirit, leads us through these various scenes. Friend, we can't miss the fact that it's the divine author who is leading us through this account. The God who has created you, the God who has made you, and the God who in Christ is redeeming you. This is the God who brings us this text. And so, friend, every detail that we have here, carefully chosen, and certainly warrants our attention in every respect. Well, friend, as we say that, it's important for us to note where this takes us. We cut through, as it were, the atmosphere. We cut through the clouds and we're taken to the sea. That's where our text really takes us in this part of the first chapter. And so we see the sea raging. White-capped mountains of water, frothing, heaving heavenward and then collapsing on themselves. We see the mist and we hear the wind. This is where our God takes us as he's instructing us on the grace of God to a storm. And then as he directs our attention, friend, you can't miss the fact that he directs our attention to a vessel that's being tossed in this sea like a child's toy. It goes from one mountain of water tossed to another. It's going under the waves, above the waves, heaving at every moment, really facing demise. That's our first scene here. It takes us to a point of almost certain peril. It takes us to this moment where you see this vessel wrapped with the genuine fear that the next wave will be the last. And then, as God's Spirit leads us, of course, He leads us not just to the vessel, but also to those who are on deck. And so we come to the end of chapter 1 with this scene. You have these men who were once crying out to their false gods, to the idols of the nations, to the vanities of the sinful mind. And then all of a sudden they discern that through the waves and through the wind, the one who has brought this storm upon them is God over all. Not the gods that they've formed with their hands, but as Jonah tells them that he is a worshiper of the true God, he tells them this, the God whom he serves is the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. And then they realize, friend, they discern through the waves and they discern through the frothing seas that it is Jehovah who has brought this to them. And now, friend, you had men who were trembling. Trembling at the onset of the storm, certainly. Trembling because they certainly faced a sea that would destroy them at any moment. But they tremble now for a very different reason. Mariner, why do you tremble now? We fear Jehovah. 
The One who is God over all. The One whom we have rejected our lives through. The One whom we did not call upon before this moment. It is He who rules the waves. It is He who controls the wind. And we have sinned. And we've also found men on the ship, a man on the ship, filled with light. The knowledge of this Jehovah. He has sinned. And he tells us it's for his sake too. For his sake chiefly that the storm has come. But then, friend, I want you to notice that through the mist, through the wind, the Lord takes us not just to that interaction, but takes us to another exchange. We beseech Thee, O Lord, we beseech Thee. Note what the mariners are doing here. Oh, you see, friend, they've now come to know the true God. And so they emphasize something that we can't miss either. We beseech Thee, not Kronos, not Molech, not Asherah. We beseech Thee, O Lord. We beseech Thee, the One who rules the winds and the waves. Creator God, we beseech Thee. And friend, I want you to notice that the very next thing that we're told here is that their supplication is that the Lord would not lay guilt upon them. They fear contracting any more guilt than what they already have. But then as you look through this, friend, you can't miss the idea that these are men, as you come to verse 16, who are not afraid of the storm only. Uh, It's a striking thing what the Word of God does here. It says in the 16th verse, these were men who feared the Lord exceedingly. That's the very same way they're described in verse 10. But in verse 10, they feared the storm. Note that again. Verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid. It's the same word in the Hebrew. The idea is, is that they were once those who feared the wind, who feared the tempest. Now they become those who fear God after the tempest has ceased. Well, friend, we can't miss that. These men then show us a picture of true devotion. These mariners who did not know God when they embarked from Joppa. These men who had no knowledge of the true God before this moment. These men now, not because of the storm, but in thanksgiving to Jehovah alone, turning from their idols, they worship Him who rules wind and wave. Now friend, our focus has that both last midweek and also up to this point been upon the mariners. The text has led us to focus on their affections, their actions, their words. But now friend, we are returning to our prophet. And so what is Jonah in this moment? Take us for a moment back to the storm. Take us back to the howling wind, and where do you find Jonah? Will you find him in the belly of the ship at first? Fainted. He trembled too. He was afraid too. He was one of those who were numbered, that certainly saw their own demise in the waves. Certainly heard the threatenings of their lives through the wind. So was Jonah. But then as you come throughout this text, you can't miss the idea. The idea that runs right through this is that this is a man who has been chastened, a man who has been exposed in his sin, and then finally a man who is condemned. I mean, note what the man here says in verse 12. The wind and the waves rage. 
And he cries, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. Friend, when Jonah says that, note what he's saying. Throw me into the very waves that would break this ship, a vessel stronger than my bones. Throw me into the waves that's threatening our demise at this very moment. That's what Jonah's saying. Essentially what he's saying, the prophet, is really that, that he is going to die. Note that there's no mention here of deliverance. I think too quickly we read proleptically, because we know the story. He simply says, throw me in. That's all he knows, that's all he says. Now friend, how does he know this? Of course he's a prophet of God. Perhaps God has revealed this to him through special revelation. Perhaps God has revealed to him that, that in a special way the sea will stop. And, and so the idea is that Jonah must be cast in if the mariners are to be saved. But friend, it could also be through very simple, natural deduction. You know what the prophets of God were told. You know what they were told of old. The Lord says to them, When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, his blood will I require at thy hand. Jonah was commissioned to go to Nineveh. The Lord had told him that his commission was simple. You were to preach to those who were about to die. And note what the prophet is told here. I'm reading here from Ezekiel. If he fails to do so, it's the prophet himself who becomes liable to the sentence of death. Or it could even be far simpler than that, couldn't it, friend? Jonah could deduce that it should be his life that's destroyed if the mariners have any hope, simply because the soul that sinneth it shall die. He was the man who had the greatest aggravated guilt on board. He says in his own lips, it was for his sake that this storm came. It stands to reason then that he must die if they live. But what you can't miss, friend, in verses 16 and 17, is this shocking moment where both are delivered. We know the story, and so perhaps this doesn't jar us like it ought to. But friend, in 16 and 17 of Jonah 1, you have a remarkable deliverance that's known by men who were all their lives in darkness and sinned in that darkness. And you even have in verse 17 a man who sinned against light. And the common thread is that they were both delivered. My friend, there are differences between these two kinds of men. The mariners, they're always active. They're the ones rowing. They're the ones praying. They're the ones obeying. They're the ones sacrificing. They're the ones vowing. And what you can't miss that behind all of this is a silent, mute, and largely inactive prophet. There are differences between these two kinds of men. But that similarity still stands. In verses 16 and 17, both experience... Shocking deliverance. Extraordinary. In many ways unexpected. You see friend what you have here. Is that paradox. That teaches us something about the grace of God. The grace of God in this text. Is a surprising. The surprising element in all of chapter 1. You have here in the storm. A very clear picture. That God will not look slightly at sin. 
He will not deal lightly with those who high-handedly rebel. The storm screams that through its howling wind. The cutting mist argues as much. And yet, friend, you have in this scene men who for all of their lives made vows to false gods, worshipped the vanities of their minds. And you have another instance of a minister of the gospel who has fallen, has rebelled against the God who has called him, not just to the prophet, not just to the work of a prophet, but also to, the, to Jesus Christ by faith. What's surprising is these two classes of rebels, in this moment where the wrath of God is so vibrantly displayed, are both of them delivered wonderfully. And what does this teach us? Well, this is our theme for this evening. It's just this, that free grace delivers great, high-handed sinners from just wrath. Free grace delivers great, high-handed sinners from divine wrath. And I want us to consider this under only two headings this evening. Very simply, I want us to consider, first of all, the danger in which they lay and the deliverance which they found. The danger and the deliverance that we have in our text. And as I just said, friend, all around us in this moment, as the Spirit of God takes us onto the deck of this vessel that's about to be broken at any moment, in that moment, friend, we are surrounded with palpable tokens of divine wrath. We are experiencing something, proleptically, yes, but we're experiencing something of God's just indignation at sin. We can't miss that. The mariners didn't miss that. Jonah didn't miss that. It was for sin that God was visiting them in this providence. And what you can't miss either is that both Jonah and the mariners are convinced of something right off the go. As soon as they see the waves and they recognize that no kind of human agency will deliver them, they are convinced that the only way to get out of the storm is through some kind of satisfaction. Note that. They are those who are crying out to their false gods initially, hoping to placate their false deities. And Jonah knows that if they are to be delivered, he needs to be tossed into the waves. Both recognize that divine justice in this case is most certainly looking for satisfaction. Unquestionably looking for satisfaction. But what you can't miss here, friend, is just this simple idea that in either case you have men who are conscious of something, and that is that sin merits real wrath. It merits real wrath. Whether sins committed in darkness or sins committed in light, the justice of God is moved against both. Take just for a moment the mariners. Look at them as you see them here, before their conversion, before they fear the Lord. See them as they are in their pagan, in their pagan ways. For what does the scripture say about these kinds of men? It says, first of all, that they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They were haters of God. That's how the apostle describes these men. They followed the lusts of their own flesh. They were always fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's their character. Friend, that's what it is to walk in darkness. That's what it is to be those who do not fall under the light of Scripture. And who still remain in their sins and in the bondage and gall of iniquity. 
These are men who were haters of the true God. They were not merely ignorant. They hated Him. And what you can't miss either, friend, is that even so, the Scriptures go on to describe what these kinds of ignorant God-haters receive from the hand of the Lord. Note what the Scriptures say. Every man, says the Apostle also, to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labors, this is the gift of God. Again, the Apostle writes this, He did good, that is God, and gave us rain from heaven, and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Friend, they hated God, but the apostles say in one voice, they still knew something of the goodness of God. God caused the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. God gave them riches, God gave them sustenance, in spite of their being haters of God from birth. That also describes our mariners before their conversion. Great sinners who had already received, even in their paganness, great goodness. But what did they do with that good news? Well, friend, we saw this from the book of Hosea, but it's worth repeating. I gave her, says the Lord, corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Do you see what the Lord God is saying? I gave these things and they, they gave them. To their false gods. They abused the good gifts that I've given. They destroyed that which was a token of my goodness to them. Well now friend. We need to be very clear on what that means. And what that looks like. Let me take you to Carthage just for a moment. You're on the plains. There in Carthage. Perhaps by the seaside. And there a massive congregation has gathered. They stand there together surrounding a single object. A monument that stands 20 or so feet high. Brazen. The hundreds, the thousands have gathered circling this thing. They call it Kronos. It's a brazen furnace in the shape of a bull. The drums are beating. The people are dancing. They're here because they're invoking this God that they've created with their own hands to do some good for them. And so they lay down their weed and they lay down all the good things, their cattle that they have, in in hopes to placate this false God. And then, friend, what do you see? You see that most heart-wrenching sight. Where a young family comes forward with their firstborn son. The drums beating, the crowd watching, the priests officiating. As the father lays the child into the furnace. These men in Jonah 1 were likely from Carthage. And even if they weren't, friend, this scene from Carthage was reenacted over and over and over again. Do you know what that is? That is the heart of the unbeliever. 
That scene that grips us and tears us to pieces emotionally. That is exactly what it is to be in darkness. You cannot, friend, you cannot have any goodness in such a situation where God's entirely ignored. Where God is hated and His name despised. That's the scene that you have here, but you can't miss this, friend, if we're looking at this text already. When you and I see through the annals of time paganism like that, All that you're supposed to see is your own heart. Without the restraining grace of God. Without the mercy that's been given to you and to I. That is a picture, and it's only a picture, because it doesn't even touch the depths of the wickedness that lies within you and I. But that's the mariner. The kind of man that you have in this text. A hater of God. A vile preacher. But then take Jonah just for a moment. The soul that doth ought presumptuously says the law. Whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord. And that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Again, note the law, friend. That soul that doth ought presumptuously. That word presumptuously is translated elsewhere high-handed. The soul that does that which is sinful with full knowledge. That soul, says the Lord, should be cut off in the law. Elsewhere, friend, we're told that unto whomsoever much is given, much is required. Elsewhere, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Well, friend, if the mariners are pictures of men without light and without means, lost in their wickedness, what what is Jonah a picture of? A man who can have all of those things. A man who can have all of those things that would encourage him to obedience, which would encourage his holiness, and yet because of his own rebel heart, would still sin high-handedly. That's the danger in which they lie, liable to divine wrath, all of them, either in the darkness of their ignorance or in the guiltiness exposed by their light. These are the men of Jonah 1. Friend, you can liken it this way. They're both guests in one house. One is brutish, the other one is refined. But in this case, friend, Jonah 1 puts them out as both those kinds of guests that are trying to tear down the host's home. And if they could, kill the host himself. They're both hideous. But the one who's refined, friend, the one who should know better, doesn't he stand out? He certainly does. And so make much of sin, this text urges. Make much of sin. And if we do, you see, friend, the storm becomes so much less surprising. In fact, it becomes the least surprising element of Jonah 1. Of course there would be a storm for such sinners. Of course there would be a token of God's wrath against such sinners. But that brings us to our final point, and that is the deliverance. Now, friend, I want you to notice here you have, in this case, both spiritual and temporal deliverance. This is not merely deliverance from the storm in either case. Again, in verse 16, you have them fearing the Lord exceedingly. 
That The word fearing God can occur in any kind of context throughout the scriptures. But fearing God exceedingly really, does, really has in view that kind of pious devotion that flows from the heart. And of course, as you read through the rest of the 16th verse, you see what that refl- what's reflected there. Men who out of gratitude to God are quite willing and able by grace to vow unto the Lord, to give themselves over to Jehovah. But friend, even Jonah is no different. In the 17th verse, of course, we do read of his temporal deliverance. He's spared from the waves. But you note as you come to the second chapter, I'm getting ahead of myself briefly, but look through the second chapter just for a moment. Friend, as you look through this text, you find that this is a man who once once feared the presence of God. He was a man who once ran from the presence of God. And then as you read through the second chapter, he becomes a man who longs to return to it. Temporal grace. Temporal grace. Spiritual grace as well. Now friend, just briefly I want us to look at what the character of this deliverance is. And I, I'm conscious this evening, friend, that I'm preaching to those who have the light of Scripture. Well, you and I both stand far more in Jonah's place than we do the mariners by God's goodness to us. And so I want us to focus here, first of all, on Jonah. But allow me to say just this about the mariners. By the light of nature, they knew the judgment of God. They knew that those who, those who committed such things as they did were worthy of death. The light of nature could even teach them that God is angry with sinners every day. Well, friend, they could even discern this much through the waves. That shall there be evil, and the Lord hath not done it. It was a natural expectation, in other words, for them to expect the storm to continue. They were rebels against Jehovah. It was perfectly natural for them to think that after the Lord had dealt with Jonah, they would, he would deal with them next. But I want us to focus really on Jonah for a moment. I read Joshua 7 for you in its entirety. It took more time, but I think it's worthwhile for us to reflect on the text. Friend, isn't it striking what you have in that text? You have Achan. This was a man who had, because of his sin, brought calamity on a whole body of people. Then on top of that, friend, his sin is discovered by the casting of lots. The lot falls upon him, and then confession is provoked. Then, after the confession is provoked, the rebuke is issued. And then in the seventh of Joshua, you have the very conscious need to remove the sinner through death. Do you see the parallels with Jonah 1 for a moment? It's for Jonah's sake that the storm came. Jonah's sin would only be exposed by the casting of the lot. Once the lot was casted, then and only then could a confession be can be can be incited. And then after the confession is made, it's the mariners who issue the rebuke. The mariners are told that they need to remove him. Friend, our prophet, as he stands on the ship deck here, would know quite well Joshua 7. In fact, it's not even hard for us to discern that that's one of the reasons why he knew. That he needed to be tossed into the sea. Achan needed to be crushed with stones. He naturally ought to be crushed with waves. But you see, friend, as you look at this text, that only makes verse 17 all the more profound. 
It doesn't end. It doesn't end with Jonah crushed like Achan. It doesn't end with this high-handed, presumptuous sinner that brought wrath upon a whole lot of people, ending in his death. Surprisingly and shockingly, especially for a gospel minister who had gone wayward, shockingly the man is spared. Friend, I don't know if this grips us as it ought to, but this is something that should surprise us. Surprised by the grace of God for such a high-handed and presumptuous man. What's the difference between Jonah and Achan? As we close, friend, it's a very simple, very simple one. You could say it's really the difference between Judas and Peter, too. Two gospel ministers. Two men, one night, who would betray Christ. To fall. What was the difference between the two? Well, friend, it's only this. It is really only this. It's that one of them heard these words, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee. But I have prayed for thee. For thee. That, friend, was not what Judas heard. That was given only to Peter. And then he says this He prays that his faith would not fail. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. That's the difference between these men. And, friend, why is it that in Jonah 2 you have a prophet? who was once seeking to excommunicate himself and never return to the grace of God or the means of grace? Why is it that you have in Jonah 2 a man who time and again expresses his longing to return to the Lord? Is it because the whale could coax that out of the human heart? Is it because affliction alone could do it? No, friend, it is only the grace of God. Friend, we close here with just this thought. This is a manual for the grace of God. But what you can't miss is that this grace that is given is surprising. It arrests sinners who are in Christ. Friend, it arrests them every time. Every time of repentance. What do I mean? I think James... Fraser of Bray may may be of some use here. A man's whole life is but a conversion, and the Lord, after every kind of backsliding, draws after the same way as at the first conversion, yea, and deals so with them as if they may never have may seem never have been converted before. You see, friend, this is a text that tells us something. For those of us who are in Christ, friend, what this tells us is that the storm is not surprising. God's chastening hand shouldn't surprise us. What should surprise us is that Christ still intercedes. Still intercedes for sinners. Still conveys grace today. Surprising, delivering grace today. For those who sin against light and love. Friend, this is the thing that Israel failed to grasp. Had they simply returned to him. 
had they simply exercised faith on Christ, they would have found that all of their sins against light and love would have been freely pardoned. Though there were storms around them that showed them the wrath of God, well, friend, all they had to do was turn to Christ and see that wrath fully satisfied. Beloved, you and I, as we stand in Christ, are constantly receiving the grace of God, even as you have it in this text. Surprising grace. Grace for sinners against light and sinners against love. Amen.